0: Back in 2018, the Christian worship artist Corey Asbury released what became an enormous hit song called Reckless Love, a song uh, which you guys may remember describes the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. and. In terms of the song's success, it really was a mega hit as far as like Christian music goes. It was nominated for Billboard's Top Christian Song of the Year, a Grammy for Christian Song of the Year. It won multiple Dove Awards, which is sort of the Christian Grammy Award, uh, including Song of the Year. But the song was also super controversial, and it was controversial for one very specific reason. The songwriter had used the word reckless to describe God. Reckless. What does that word mean to you? There was a flurry of internet activity on social media, on blogs, and so forth, talking about this song at the time. John Piper, pastor, theologian, gave a surprisingly balanced response to this song in a blog post in which he pointed out the difficulty and often the inadequacy of using human language to describe God, which is always tricky. And he said, quote, The reason the word reckless raises the question is because in modern English, You have to work really hard to put a positive meaning on the word reckless, especially in relation to God. If you just click on a good thesaurus online and look at all the meanings associated with reckless, here they are, audacious, brash, carefree, careless, daring, foolhardy, hasty, ill-advised, imprudent, negligent, thoughtless, adventuresome, adventurous, breakneck, daredevil, desperate, devil-may-care, fast and loose, feckless, harebrained, headlong, heedless, Helter-skelter, hopeless, hot-headed, inattentive, incautious, inconsiderate, indiscreet, kooky, mindless, playing with fire, precipitate, brash, regardless, uncareful, venturous, wild. Now that is the general sense he says that one gets when one hears the term reckless driver. He doesn't care about what other people do or what he might do to other people. So is this a way for us to describe not only God, but specifically the way that he loves? You're hopefully familiar with Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, Luke 15. In the parable, a young son dishonors his father by demanding that the father give him his inheritance early. And the father willingly gives him the money to the chagrin of others. And the young son takes his inheritance He abandons his family, and he goes and spends all of his money on booze and women and who knows what else. However, when he finds himself penniless and destitute and genuinely considering eating pig slop, he decides in that moment that maybe he should eat his pride and go home But he realizes that because of his dishonorable behavior, that there's no way that he would ever be received back into the family as a son. He thinks if his father receives him at all, that maybe he would receive him back as a manual labor servant. And that was a prospect to him that seemed way better than the situation he was in at the time. You probably know how this ends. The father not only received the son back with open arms, but he also threw him a great party. To celebrate the fact that his son had come home, he extended grace, compassion, forgiveness to someone who had thoughtlessly betrayed him, which, by the standards of our culture, is foolishness, or perhaps even recklessness. Why would you ever give someone who has hurt you or betrayed you or abused you or misused you a second chance? Tim Keller, in his fabulous book, The Prodigal God, examines this story in depth. But in particular, he looks at a word that we always use in relationship to this story, but it's a word not actually found in the biblical text, and it is the word prodigal. What in the world does that mean? What does prodigal mean? Why do we associate it with the son? Well, the word means reckless. It means reckless, especially in relationship to money. Someone who spends and spends without care is being prodigal. But Keller's twist on the story through his exegesis is that it's truly the father in the story who acts in a prodigal way. He willingly gives away his money to the son, and then seemingly without consideration for how the son heard or betrayed him, or the potential that it could happen again, he not only receives him back in, but he goes to great expense to celebrate his son who has returned. The elder brother in the story looks at what his father has done and sees nothing but foolishness. He refuses to go into the celebration for his brother and tells his father, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could go celebrate with my friends. And when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf. In other words, the father's love is viewed by the older brother as Recklessness. And so with this in mind, let's look at Hosea chapter 3. Let's hold those things and examine this continued story of Hosea. And the Lord said to me, me being Hosea, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer, And a lethek of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. This is the Word of the Lord. So today we pick back up in the story of Hosea and Gomer. We first saw a piece of their story in chapter one. but, but now something has transpired between where we left their story and where we pick it up today. right? So we saw a little biographical sketch of what God had called Hosea to do to marry a woman who was known to be promiscuous and to have children with her. We saw that in chapter 1. In chapter 2, what we realized is that that's exactly the relationship that God has had with Israel, that in many ways they have been promiscuous, not only sexually, but they've been promiscuous in going after all of these other gods and worshiping other gods, including Baal and Asheroth and others. So in chapter 2, we saw that in many ways, Hosea's life and his marriage is a picture of what's happening in the relationship between God and Israel. But then we get to chapter 3, and what we find is that Hosea finds himself in the position of having to reclaim Gomer as his wife. And we don't have all the details here. We don't know exactly what has happened. But here's what we do know. First... We know that Gomer has been engaged in adulterous acts. Like that's not new info for us, but we see it's still going on. And then secondly, we know that Hosea literally has to purchase her out of the situation that she's in. In fact, we're given this specific amount that he pays, 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. So he gives some money and some grain in order to purchase her out of the situation that she's in. The traditional view among scholars is that Gomer has apparently fallen into some form of slavery. Maybe it's prostitution. We're not really sure. However, what's strange here is that the amount that Hosea pays for her is not really that great of an amount of money. And a lot of the historical data would support the notion that this is like maybe half of what an actual slave would have cost at this time. And and so maybe that's pointing to just like the depravity of Gomer's situation, to the fact that her life wasn't even worth that much to the people that she was enslaved to, that Hosea could come and purchase her at a bargain, at a discount, And even to us, by our standards, Gomer's kind of a worthless person. She can't seem to be faithful to her husband or to her children. Uh, She's sunk into incredible depths of sinfulness and betrayal. And honestly, we would have absolutely no problem with Hosea just going, I'm done. I'm done here. Fool me once, shame on me, right? And in legal terms, Hosea has a solid case, not only for infidelity, but also for like abandonment. And I would add that by the standard of scripture, Hosea has grounds for divorce. She's been unfaithful to him. And yet, verse one, and the Lord said to me, go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. God, I can get on board with helping this woman get out of a situation where maybe her life is threatened, but love her, Like, that's ridiculous. That's foolishness. That's recklessness. What about my life? What about my children? What about what I want? And God says, don't you realize I'm doing the exact same thing with Israel? He says, go again, love a woman who's loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. By the way, if you eat raisins, you're going to hell. None of you guys are eating raisins, right? Just, just making sure, right? No, what's probably going on there is it's probably a reference to a pagan worship rite or something that is involved in uh, pagan worship that the Israelites were engaging in. Uh, in fact, the New International Version translation calls them sacred raisin cakes. And I got a big laugh this week. As I was, re- I was reading a sermon that a guy had written about this passage, and he immediately took this and turned it into a metaphor, and in all seriousness asked, What are the sacred raisin cakes in your life? <laughs> I thought it was great. God's point, though, is Hosea, I'm doing the same things. And remember, God's call on Hosea's life and marriage was that it would serve as a living metaphor for God's relationship to Israel. And so today, we get a glimpse at the end of the text that God will ultimately redeem those who are his, his people, despite their spiritual infidelity. But that doesn't mean that they won't face consequences. It doesn't mean that Israel won't face consequences for their sin. They most most certainly would. And, And Gomer did as well. Right, she, she found herself in a place where she literally had to be rescued. She literally had to be bought back. There would come redemption. Redemption, though, also comes with responsibilities. Look at verse 3. And I said to her, this is Hosea talking, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. In, in other words, repent and become like me. It's it's in many ways what God has been saying to the people of Israel from the very beginning. Be holy, for I am holy. Here's how I will act in relationship to you, Hosea says. I will be faithful to you. I will be with you. And all I ask is that you do the same thing. We talk about this often, but biblical repentance doesn't simply mean feeling sorry for your sins so much as it means acting to live differently. Contained within that word repentance is the notion of turning. Like I was on one path or my gaze was going in one direction, but now it is turned. I'm now on a different road. I'm now facing a different way. Gomer, if you want my love, if you want to benefit from the fact that I've purchased you, here are the terms, right? Here are the rules. This is Jesus' basic call to all of humanity. Repent and believe. Turn from whatever road you've been on with whatever physical or metaphorical gods you've been worshiping and now live as if I am truly your Lord and Master. Jesus will rescue you from whatever you're in and from whatever you've done, but he demands your faithfulness in response to him. Your fidelity to him. Theologian Michael Frost, in his provocatively titled book, Jesus the Fool, says this. In the face of Jesus' dogged steadfastness, how could we but offer him our own loyal allegiance? As we've seen, our decision to serve Jesus should be made not in order to earn Jesus' grace, but as a response to it. He who has given so much for us can rightly call us to lay down our lives for him, recognizing that we will continue to stumble and fall short of his impeccable standard. We nonetheless strain onward out of gratitude for his mercy and kindness to us. Why do we serve the poor or preach the gospel? Why do we continue with the otherwise foolish work of peacemaking or justice-seeking? not out of some neurotic fear of losing God's favor, but precisely because we have tasted that favor and would do anything for the one who died to win it for us. Or as Paul, in calling the Corinthian church to live lives of moral and sexual faithfulness to the way of Jesus puts it, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own. So glorify God in your body. You've been bought at a price, church. Gomer, you will be with me, and you will be my wife, and I will be your faithful husband. Or do you not realize that I've bought you? You are mine. Hosea's literal purchase of his own wife is a harbinger of what is to come ultimately in Christ. Where through his own blood, Jesus purchased the redemption of his people, and not just ethnic Jews, but people of all nations, tribes, and tongues. You are not your own. You're not your own. But that's about the most un American, unenlightened, backwards, anti individualist claim that we could possibly make, isn't it? You're not your own. It's a claim that could truly be received as hatred by other people. In a world that's screaming that you are your own. It's your body. It's your choice. It's your life. It's your choice. Everything revolves around you, the individual, and what you want. The scripture clearly says, though, not if you belong to Christ. Not if you've been purchased. Not if you've been bought at a price. What led up to Paul's claim in 1 Corinthians 6 was this. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? He doesn't mean members in the sense of being in a club. He means like body parts, like my arm is a member of my body. Your bodies are members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Do you you see that? He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So he's taking this language that's most often pointing at marriage and the way that a man and a wife will become one flesh. And he's saying, if you have become one with Christ, then there is this one flesh thing that's going on there as well. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So in other words, trusting Christ and faith doesn't just change us spiritually on like an intangible sort of ethereal plane. No, according to Paul, we're physically changed. If you're a follower of Jesus... You can't do whatever you want with your body, sexually or otherwise, because it's no longer your body. Your body is now joined to Christ. You are now one flesh with Christ. This is a marriage, and the scripture describes us as the gomer of the marriage. We're the ones who have been purchased and redeemed out of our sin. Out of the place where we were enslaved to sin. But now the responsibility of fidelity falls on our shoulders. If if you've been bought at a price, if you are in Christ, then the call is to be steadfast and faithful. This actually gives a great deal of context to what Paul says of marriage in Ephesians 5. In the same way that Hosea's marriage was meant to serve as a living metaphor for what God had done and would do, For Israel, our marriages, our marriages are also meant to serve as a living metaphor for what Christ has done for us and how we are to walk with him. Paul's famous famous text, Ephesians 5, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Verse 24 is key. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In the wake of second wave feminism, these words are often considered controversial even by people in the church today. But notice, they're only controversial If you view your body and your life as your own, as belonging solely to you, if my body and my life are my own, then it would be foolish, even reckless, to submit it to another person as an act of love. It's mine. If instead, though, you you view your body and your life as belonging to Christ, as being one flesh with Christ, then this isn't controversial. This is a living metaphor for our only hope in life and death. The New City Catechism that we use with our kids asks this question. It's the very first question of the catechism. What is our only hope in life and death? And the answer is that we are not our own, but belong, body and soul, both in life and in death, to God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. What is our only hope in life and in death? And the answer is, is that I am not mine. I I don't belong to me. Whether you realize it or not, and whether our culture realizes it or not, it's incredible news that I would be purchased by Christ and that my life and my body would now belong to him. Because outside of that, I have no hope I have no future. My only hope is that I am not my own, but instead that I belong body and soul in this life and in the life to come to God and to our Savior Jesus Christ. Our only hope in this world is predicated on the notion that I am not my own. Now notice that in Paul's picture of marriage, That the church, meaning both the husband and the wife, assuming both are believers, that the church is first submitting in all things to Christ. That the marriage relationship flows first from a place of submission to Christ. We have to recognize that if that isn't the starting place in our marriages, then relationships can become toxic, can't they? Right? If that's not the common ground that we're starting from, a wife who is fully submitting herself to her husband, but, who is, who, but he's not submitting himself to Christ, like that's a bad situation. In the same way, a husband who sacrificially loves his wife and is willing to give himself up for her, like Hosea, but the wife is not submitted to Christ, it's a bad situation. And yet God's call to Hosea is to press on in sacrificial love because his life is prophecy, like his life is speaking a word, a word about who God is and how God loves and about his long-suffering steadfastness, about his patience. Paul's words are not meant to simply be taken as tips for a happy marriage, by the way, even though I think that a marriage lived first in submission to Christ will be a happy one. His words are meant to be received as words of discipleship, helping our lives and our marriages to serve as glaring examples to the watching world of what Christ has done for us. Is that reckless? By the standards of our culture, absolutely it is. A God who forgives you over and over again, no matter what you've done to him, That seems like recklessness. If a man continually forgave a wife who cheated on him and came back to her, like in the case of Hosea, we would call him a fool. Like if we had a friend who was doing that, we would go, what is wrong with this person? But by the standards of the gospel and the standard of Scripture, this is what love is. Let me leave you today with Paul's description of this perfect love. 1 Corinthians 13. You know this, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth, the truth being the gospel. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Here's the realization for me, though. If I'm on the receiving end of that kind of love, it feels perfect and appropriate. Right? But if I'm on the end of having to give this kind of love, it feels stupid (laughs) and reckless. Like I'm just setting myself up to be hurt again and again. Some of you have experienced this in friendships and relationships But let us remember that this is how Christ loves us. And that his desire is that our love for each other, both in marriage and also within the church, that our love for each other would be so different than the kind of love that is practiced and experienced by the rest of the world, that it would be deeply compelling to those who witness it. And let us not be guilty of willingly and gladly receiving this kind of love while being totally unwilling to display it in our own lives and relationships. Justin spent all of last week talking about being imitators of Christ, right? He talked about the fruit of the Spirit this morning. Paul says the chief of these things is love. One way you can receive that is to think of it as the starting place. Where do I begin with all of this stuff? We begin by looking at the way that Jesus loves us and by seeking to love our spouses, our family, our neighbors, our coworkers, those around us in the same way. Who loved us to the point of death, even death on a cross, Paul says. And so this morning, let's close our time by just meditating on these words, on what this really looks like, by considering how incredible God's call is on the life of Hosea, how difficult and challenging it must have been, and yet how grateful we should be for the fact that even though we had no hope, even though we were simply our own, doing whatever we thought was best, that God in his mercy and grace sent his only son so that we could be saved out of belonging to ourselves, so that we could become his So that we could be called his beloved children and his people forever. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your scripture this morning. Lord, we've looked at some texts that are challenging. And even though we maybe have not been able to engage them all fully, Father, I pray that we come away this morning with an understanding that in all things you are good and faithful. And that in calling us to ourselves, Father, you not only extend grace and forgiveness to us, but you call us to a new way of life. A way of life that's modeled on the life of Christ. Oh, Lord, make us men and women who desire to be learners of Christ, who desire to spend time with him not only in prayer and in worship and in meditation, God, but, but that we're digging into the Gospels, and the account of who he is and how he lived and what he did and what he didn't do and how he interacted with other people and the kind of love that he's exhibited for us by willingly going to his death on a cross so that we might be reconciled to the Father. Lord, forgive us when we fail you in this, as we so often do. We are so desperately in need of your grace on a daily basis Father, help us to wake each morning and resolve to follow you, to be characterized not by people, not as being people who just claim you, but to be characterized as people who are truly seeking to live out your love in our lives. I ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.